season of waiting, anticipation, that's really what it is. Historically, God's people have always been a people of Advent. Old Testament and New Testament. If you've gotten our resource, which we're giving away, and I notice a lot of them are starting to disappear, which is awesome, from J.C. Ryle, you may be confused right now because at the beginning of December, we're reading all about the second coming. And you're like, oh, I thought this was Christmas. But the reality is, church, that we are in Advent, not waiting on Jesus to come the first time. The old covenant saints did that. We're waiting on his soon return at the end of the age. And so the people of God have always been waiting. But waiting is hard, especially for people like us. I mean, probably been hard forever, but especially for people who can find answers in their pockets to every question known to man. Not just find an answer, but I mean, you and I can hit Google search or uh, Go Go Duck or whatever it is you use, and you can you can find an answer, not just one, but thousands of answers. Discussion boards, blogs. Websites, resources, books, magazines, journals, lectures, YouTubes. You get my point. We don't wait for things. I mean, when I was a child, that's not that long ago. We used to watch a show and wait seven days until the next show. And if you missed it when I was really young, when you missed it, you just missed it. There was no VHS to record it. There was no uh, rewind time. Like, you waited until it went off the air, I guess, and then maybe when the series reran 25 years later, you go, oh, there's that episode I missed all those years ago. We don't do that. We binge watch TV. If I like a show, I can watch the entire show, all 19 seasons, 5,000 episodes this weekend. Because when I get to the end and the cliffhanger happens, which is supposed to wait seven days, what do I do? Oh, I got time to watch one more. Let's watch one more. Right? We are not a people that wait well, right? We aren't. I'm not. You're not. None of us like to wait. I mean, you can remember being a kid. You can remember being a kid. Some of you are still just big kids. And then Christmas morning felt like eternity away. I can remember getting out of school. And when we got out of school, it was time for Christmas, right? It was like, no more exams, no more studying, it's, it's here. And then it was like always, you know, a length of days, five days, seven days, whatever, until you got to it. And by the time it came, you could not sleep for days. Parents now know what I'm speaking about. You young kids don't know yet, but you will dread these days uh, that I'm talking about when you become a parent, right? Because now none of the kids want to go to sleep. They all are waiting and anticipating, right? Waiting is hard. But when we look in the Bible, we're not talking about waiting a few days, a few months, a year. We're talking about waiting millennia for God to deliver promises. One generation lives and dies, another is born and lives and dies, another is born and lives and dies, and there's no finality. There's no coming yet. We're still waiting. And, and, and that's complicated even further. We saw it last week, didn't we? Because waiting is not like you just have this peaceful, calm life going on, but waiting is filled with hurting. 
disappointments. Crushing, crushing news. That's where we are in the book of Ruth. They've been waiting. Their forefathers, Adam, received a promise, he and his wife, that they would have a child, a man-child, who would crush the head of their enemies. And Noah received the promise. And Abraham received the promise. And the patriarchs received the promise. And the promise has not been delivered yet. We've entered into a time now of great pain and suffering for the people of God. Judges, the book which just precedes Ruth in our Bibles, is a story about this waiting and how it cycles through plenty when people are worshiping God and serving God and then a turn from God to the gods of the nations around them which leads to disaster and that disaster is a judgment from the hand of God and usually a conquering or a captivity through war and then a judge is raised up by God to deliver his people which leads to repentance and the repentance leads to worship and guess what happens? It starts all over again. So it's not just waiting, the Bible shows us, but it shows us that waiting is filled with decades of difficulty. It's important for us to even know that Ruth, the book of Ruth, most scholars believe covers at least 10 to 20 years. We read it like episode, 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 but that's not the way it is. You saw in the first chapter that Elimelech, this man, which by the way, his name means God is king, but he's living in an age when the, it's, it is said commonly as a phrase, there is no king in Israel, and every man does whatever is right in his own eyes. Here's this man named for the very king that Israel does have, God, but he it makes the decision to take his wife and his boys from the land of promise because of the famine which has come on the people as a judgment from God for their disobedience. And he looks across over to Moab and he sees there, there is grain in the field. There is plenty. And he takes his family and he makes a practical decision. We have to eat. God will understand. And he moves to Moab. And after he moves to Moab, he dies and leaves Naomi and her two sons. And so she marries her boys to Moabite women. And I know Ryan talked to you about the fact that the Moabites are a people that come from descendants of both Israel and the nations that surrounded Israel. In other words, um, they come from Lot and his daughters. They come, these people come from an incestual relationship. And now they've multiplied and grown into a great nation of violence and drunkenness and godlessness. But Elimelech, in the promised land, under the judgment of God because of his disobedience, along with the people of Israel's disobedience, looks over at Moab as a refuge. And so he takes his family there and he dies. And Naomi looks at there and says, we've got to have a way to stay. Our husband's dead. And she marries her boys to Moabite women. And what happens to her sons? They die. And so now her problem has multiplied. 
she's now not alone a widow, but she now is one of three widows. And she turns then under the bitterness which her suffering has caused. She turns towards the end of the chapter. It's, 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 you got to pay attention to the clues there in the text. That she, she realizes God's hand is against us. God's hand is against us. He has brought these things on us. And I will go back to the promised land. But you, my daughter, don't multiply my problems. Don't come with me. You stay here, marry Moabite men, and raise your own families. I'm an old woman. By the time I have you some sons, you'll be well past the marriageable age. There's no hope in coming with me. But a ray of hope breaks forth. What we have in the first chapter is the people of God are empty at the beginning, and Naomi is full. She has a husband. She has two sons. She's in Moab. She's got plenty to eat. By the end of chapter 1, a reversal has happened. Grain is growing again in the promised land. And Naomi, the people of God, are being filled, and Naomi is being emptied. Emptied of everything else she can count on in this world. Unperceptibly, what God is doing is moving Naomi back to himself. Chapter 1 is a picture of God providentially moving his child back to himself. Naomi is his child. And she has wandered from him. And she has looked to this world and her husband looked to this world for their satisfaction. And it has left them high and dry. And now God is moving them back. But it's important to recognize when God starts to move, notice Naomi doesn't see that as anything good. Notice what happens in, as we move into chapter 2. The people of Bethlehem are stirred to run out and they say, is this Naomi? Her name meaning the one with plenty, the one with joy. She says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. That's the move I just told you about. She was full, and God moved her to empty. Israel was empty, and God was moving them to full. And God is moving her back to Israel. But she doesn't see it as like this exciting providential thing. I've come back. She's suffering in her waiting. And some of you are right where Naomi is. You are suffering in your waiting. I just want to say to you, in this season, God knows you. He knows me. He knows how hard our waiting is. He knows how difficult our suffering can be. And he has not done what he is doing unintentionally. He's doing what he's doing for our good. We not only see this in the Bible, we see it in historical men. My favorite hymn, it has been for many years, because I've always had this, I don't know, weird obsession with dying. Um, I talk about that in another sermon, but not that I think I'm going to die, it's just I think about dying a lot. I think about it a lot. 
And during one of those seasons of thinking about that, early in my ministry, I found this hymn, which I had never heard sung, and now it's my favorite hymn. It was written in a dark time of waiting. It reads like this. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. He rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright design and works his sovereign will. And ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sins, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. These words were written by a man, not in an ivory tower. They were written by a man named William Cooper. John Newton was his pastor. He lived most of his adult life depressed to the point of not being able to leave his home. He believed that God had his people and his people would be saved, but he journaled often, I do not see myself as part of God's people. He saw himself as a sinner. He saw himself as broken. He saw himself in need of a savior. And I do believe he was saved, but in his darkest moments, he didn't think God was for him. He thought God was against him. But in his better moments, challenged by his pastor to write hymns of faith, he wrote over 800 uh, songs, he and his pastor together, called the Only Hymns. And one of them was this very song, where he understands that when you're Naomi and you're empty and life is bitter, that it feels like God is doing nothing but frowning on you. But trust this, what you cannot see is God's fatherly good smile behind the clouds. A smile that is saying, you are becoming what I'm making you to be. Through all of life's trial, through all of the struggle, through all of the pain, he's transforming you and me. And he knows by his designs what is best for us. And we do not know what is best for ourselves. And so we're left eating the bitter bud, waiting on the flower to burst forth, waiting on the clouds to rain blessings. And they will. And they will. And we see it in Ruth 1 and 2. Look at this great end. So Naomi returned to Ruth, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they became, came to Bethlehem, the house of bread at the beginning of barley harvest. The light is starting to break. And today I want us to see two main things. I want us to see in chapter 2, number 1, that our Lord, our Lord is a safe refuge for his people. And secondly, our Lord is a great redeemer of his people. So let's look at this text. Let's read it together. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. 
And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she, re she happened to come to a part of the field. She happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. The first seven verses of chapter 2 open up to us a new character on the scene. We've seen Naomi, Elimelech, Ruth, and some other characters in chapter 1. But now we're introduced to this new character right here in chapter 2 at the very beginning. And it's a narrator's point. This is, not, this is not Naomi telling Ruth, hey, we have this guy named Boaz in our community. He's a great guy. No. Listen, it's important you get this. Naomi said nothing to Ruth about Boaz. As we'll see at the end of the chapter, I believe, based on the text, that Naomi has forgotten about Boaz. She doesn't even remember Boaz until she's told about him. She certainly doesn't tell Ruth about it, even if she does remember she doesn't tell Ruth about it. Ruth is going to be the main character of our, of our uh, story today in the, in the text. But what the narrator is doing is bringing in a second character. And that second character, his name is Boaz. Boaz is given, his character is given to us as we pay attention to the text. First of all, in chapter 2, verse uh, Three, it says that she happened to come to a part of the field by chance. Chance of chance, she came into the field of Boaz. In other words, the, the, the narrator's being a little funny here. The narrator's saying, you know, by hook or crook, we find the way. By chance, she got lucky. He's winking a little bit at us. He's saying, yeah, this is how she perceived it. This is how the world perceives it, but that's not at all what's happening here. Remember what I said earlier. When they were still in Moab, God was moving them back to Bethlehem. And now God is moving them toward Boaz. They don't know it, but God does. God is moving. God is working. But who is Boaz? Can we trust Boaz? Well, he builds that into us. Look at what it says in verse 4. How do we know he has great character? Well, it says, when he greeted his man, he said, The Lord be with you. And they said, the Lord bless you. So one way we know this is we know it because the way he carries out his business dealings is in a way that blesses the Lord. If you want to know where your heart is with the Lord, it's better to judge that outside of these walls and in your daily life. Boaz was the kind of businessman who ran his business to the glory of God and he cared about his people and when he greeted them even, he greeted them with, The Lord be with the Lord bless you. The Lord be with you. So we know that about him. I think, secondly, we're told right there in chapter 2, verse 1, that he's not only just a relative of Naomi's husband, but he's a worthy man. It means that he is a man who has great wealth, great standing, great prestige. He's not only 
wealthy, but he's considered to be a man of high character. He not just has money and fields and barley harvests, but he has character to go along with it. It's important that we understand that in the Israelite culture, when God assigned them their places to live and to raise their farmed goods, they never owned the land. No family ever owned the land in Israel. The land belonged to the Lord God Almighty. What the people got from God was the ability to farm the land and reap its benefits. So all Boaz owns is the ability to use his character to be diligent and work hard and raise a crop. And when the crop is raised, that crop is God's blessing on his life. That's important because as we go through this story, you're going to see what, what God does for his people here and how he takes care of them and how your God cares about you. But just remember, Boaz, a man of high character, he's a member of the family of Elimelech, the clan of Elimelech, He's a man that centered his life around godliness. We see it even in his greeting. But we see it even further in how he deals wisely. He comes into the place, he sees a woman he doesn't recognize, and he asks, where, where is she from? Who is she? Who does she belong to might be a better way to see that. Who is this new woman, and where does she come from, and who does she belong to? And his servant tells him clearly, she's the one who's come from Moab with Naomi. She's asked to glean. She didn't charge in with her rights, demanding the right to glean. She comes and asks permission, and when I gave her permission, she's worked hard all day long. A good report goes out. So Boaz is set up for us in these first seven verses as a man that can be trusted, of high character, from the clan of Elimelech, a near relative to Naomi and to Ruth, a man who has great wealth because of his character. A man who deals with all of his business as from the Lord. Boaz is set aside for just a moment, really, because the next paragraph, though he's there, focuses on Ruth. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Verse 8, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink with the young men what they have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. Verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Here we see the story take this turn in chapter 2. Boaz is raised up as a great man of the community. Ruth goes out to glean. And who is she going to glean after? Any man that will show grace to her. That's what the word favor means. Any man that will allow me. 
and give me grace to glean. That's who I will go after and glean in their field. And so she goes off to gather the grain for her and Naomi. And when she gets to this part of the field that she just happens to enter into, she goes to the head servant and says, may I glean in your field? And he says, you may. And then she works diligently gleaning all day long, only to be noticed by Boaz, the, the man who's over this farm. And in this paragraph, we see one more step in the providence of God. Boaz says, you can stay in my field until the harvest is finished. This is a wicked place. Sadly, our people do whatever's right in their eyes. They will mistreat you. My daughter, stay with my men. I've told them not to lay a hand on you. The grace of God, protection. Not just provision, but protection. Her character will be maintained in Boaz's field. No one will take advantage of her. She can trust Boaz because of his character and because of the man of God that he is. And what does she do in response to this? Well, she falls at his feet. She is overwhelmed with his goodness. And she says, I, why have I found grace in your eyes, my Lord? Why would you look on me and give me favor, give me grace? Everything about Ruth is commendable. Everything about Ruth in this story is commendable. Back in chapter 1, she stays with her mother-in-law because she has hope in God when her mother-in-law does not have hope in God. She goes to a country that is not her own and she's never been there before. All she knows of Israel is that they have this covenant God that she wants to be near. She goes there a foreigner. Not just a sojourner, not just somebody passing through the land, but a refugee, someone who's not going to go back home. And she is the least of the least. According to the Levitical law, foreigners are lower than even sojourners. She's not just passing through the land so you can take care of her. She is the most needy of the needy. She is beneath the sojourner. She is on the level of a widow and an orphan. The lowest of the low. She has no way to provide for herself. No rights to claim for her own. She's at the mercy of everyone else around her. And her hope is in the God of Israel. At the worst of her times, she believes that God is her only hope. And the first time we see that is not from her lips, it's from Boaz's lips. Did you catch it? She said, why have I found favor? And he said, because I've heard of your deeds to Naomi and that you sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Well, that was kind of presumptuous, wasn't it? How is it that Boaz came to this conclusion about a woman from a pagan country that has come to Israel and accepted taking vows towards their God? How is it that a man like Boaz would know something like that? Well, it's, it's pretty simple to see. It's in our text. And I want to flip forward. I'm not going to preach Taylor's message, but I do want to mention it. At the end of this, the genealogy of David is given. And what we see is that the generations of Perez are given. The father of Hezron, the Hezron father of Ram, Ram fathered 
Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. What about Salmon? Who was he? Well, we find from the genealogy of Jesus that Salmon married another Gentile woman. A woman who was in a dark place, who had no hope and no refuge. And these spies showed up at her town. And she took them in her apartment. And they said, we've come to see the land and to see the city. Our God has sent us. And she said, when you come back, when you come back, will you remember me? Is it that your God will give me grace, give me favor? And the spies hear from God that they are to leave Rahab in her home. And Rahab's home will stand when everything else falls. And so Rahab took refuge in the word of God and the people of God and the covenant of God as a foreign woman. And what did God do? He saved Rahab. And what did Rahab in her genealogy do? She bore Boaz. And what did Boaz do? Boaz saw a woman in a field. A foreigner who had come to Israel seeking refuge. And he knew that she was seeking it. Not from him, not from the village, not from Bethlehem. She was seeking it of the Lord. He knew when he helped her, in other words, he was obeying God. He was doing what the law called for, but beyond what the law called for. He's not just doing what the law requires. He's not just letting her glean around the edges of the field. Look what he does. In the next passage, mealtime came, and he calls and says, Come and eat and dip bread in, in the wine. So she sat down with the reapers, and, and he ate the roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles up for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. He's not doing what the law says. He's doing what grace says. Boaz is not a man just following the points of the law because he's required. Boaz is a man who loves the Lord and he mimics the Lord in his graciousness. Hey, come and eat with my men. I'll give you food to eat. He wasn't required to do that. She got done eating, got her fill, and he said, hey, go in there and, and reap. Go back to work. And he told his men, pull stalks out so she can have more. Give her more. No businessman, no capitalist, no businessman makes decisions like this. He's not making decisions that are best for him. He's seeing a person who has sought refuge from God, and he is willing to be a part of the refuge that God is extending. That's who Boaz is. That's who Boaz is. And we see it in verse 17. She gleaned in the field until the evening, and then she beat out the barley. And in beating out the barley... She got an ephah, which is not something we're familiar with. It's about 22 liters. You can think, some scholars say six gallons, and some say 10 gallons of barley. I grew up on a cotton farm. People always got on me about how much cotton we leave in the field, which is a misconception. And old folks used to tell me all the time, if y'all did it the way we did, you wouldn't have all those scraps out there in the field. Gleanings, you wouldn't have those. 
But the reality is that there's not a lot of cotton out there because what the spindle and the cotton picker does is string it out. It makes it look really white, and there's nothing to it. It doesn't weigh anything. You could pick by hand all day, and you wouldn't get a sack full of cotton. It's not worth your time, in other words. That's what gleanings are. Gleanings are the bare minimum. Now, God went beyond the gleanings. God let them glean the seconds. They weren't allowed, by the way, by law, to go back in their field and get the seconds. They had to leave them. Why? Because God owned the land. They didn't. Who was God providing for? The widows, the orphans, the farms, the sojourners, the people in need. God had a heart for them. He said, they're mine. I'll take care of them. And he said, don't go all the way to the edge of your field. Leave just the edge. Don't turn around on the inroads. Don't pick them. Leave them alone. Right? And they would go out there and they would pick. But look what Boaz has done. Even with all of that, he said, my God is a God of grace. And grace has no limit. Hey, guys. Put more on the ground for her. Let her think she's hit the pot of gold. <laughs> Let her have more. Let her have more. You see, in your darkest moment, what you've got to remember about your God is he's a God of more. He's giving you more than you could ever imagine. He's supplying every need and beyond. It might not be the need you're focused on, but it's your greatest need. Our God is dispensing his grace at the point of yours and my greatest needs. Might not be bigger bank accounts, better clothes, nicer houses, cars to drive. It might not be raises at the job, promotions at the job, more authority, more command. It might not even be a better time in your marriage. That might not be your highest need. And God knows what your highest need is, even when you don't. So when you're tempted to say, God doesn't care about me anymore, I'm empty. Understand, God's all about giving you grace where you most need it. That's what this story is telling us. God's meeting Naomi's need through Ruth, and he's meeting Ruth's need through Boaz, but God's the one giving and giving and giving. We keep going in the story, and we see that as she brings this into the city, and she goes to her mother-in-law and shows her what she's gleaned, and her mother-in-law in verse 19 says, where did you glean today? She's blown away. It's the price is right. She hit the jackpot on the wheel. How did this happen? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She has not told anything about Boaz. And Naomi has not said anything about Boaz at this point. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she worked. She said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said, may he be blessed of the Lord, whose kindness, whose hesed, whose covenant love, whose mercy and grace and love and kindness and forgiveness. That's what that word means. Whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord that his covenant love, the Lord's covenant love, the Lord's covenant love has not forgotten the living or the dead. Naomi came back bitter and basically, if we summed it up in modern terms, she wanted to die in a ditch. It's the only way I can understand what she did. Y'all go back, I'm walking home. Into, okay, you're going to walk home by yourself, an elder lady, no protection, into a land where everybody's just doing whatever they want to do. That doesn't sound like a woman that wants to live long to me. She's given up on life. 
And when she's met with her friends that have come out from Bethlehem, is it Naomi? Could it be? She says, don't call me joyful and blessed and full. I'm empty. I'm bitter. God has dealt harsh with me. My husband's dead. My children are dead. And I'm stuck with this Moabitess who won't leave me alone. She's just coming even though it's the most foolish thing I've ever heard of in my life. She is God's child, but she has given up on God, Naomi has in the first chapter. She's given up on it. Life's hard, isn't it? Waiting is hard. Life is hard. And waiting in hard times is harder than we can imagine. And yet I told you God is moving his child back to Bethlehem so that he might bless him. The sovereign, providential hand of God underneath all of this story is moving her so that he can have this moment with her. This is what I mean by it. Listen to those words again. Who is it that you work with today? Well, his name is Boaz. Like a light switch. Hope sprung. Boaz is one of our redeemers. You thought you accidentally ended up in his portion of the field. But now this woman who said God's dealt harsh with me is saying, God has blessed us with a redeemer. Ruth. God has blessed us with a redeemer. God has given us what we most need. We don't most need an ephah of barley, but that's good. We don't most need food, fresh food cooked, that we can enjoy it with our wine. We do need that, but that's not our greatest need. Our greatest need, Ruth, is a redeemer, and Boaz is a redeemer, and God has given him to us. That's the point of this story. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close, cling to my men until they are finished with the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with the young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So Ruth clung to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. God is a safe refuge for us, church. When the waiting is hard, and when the waiting that is so hard is compounded in its hardness because of our sorrow and our hurt and our brokenness and our failure and the abuse of others, when all of that is taking place, understand God is taking his grace to the place of your greatest need. We need a redeemer, Ruth. I mean, all those other things are wonderful. But what we really needed was a redeemer, and God has done it. God has given him to us. Go stay with him. Stay with his women. Don't leave the field. Our God is a safe refuge. And, and it's not just here that we see this truth, but it's all over the Old Testament. In Psalm 57, listen to these words. Be merciful to me, O God. O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Same phrase that Boaz used of Ruth. You have sought refuge under the wing of Yahweh. Till the storms of destruction pass by, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. In the darkest day, 
what Ruth and Naomi came to understand was that God was moving providentially to place his wing over them. John Piper says the eagle moved back close to the chick, the eagle, the eaglet, and extended his wing. And Ruth, the eaglet, and Naomi, the eaglet, ran under the wing. They had sought, as Abigail said in our prayer, to find refuge in this world. And what they got was brokenness and death and destruction and hopelessness and depression, even to the point of death. And when they moved back, when God moved towards them, they moved back. And he drew them under his wing where they found grace upon grace upon grace all the way to the deepest part of their deepest need. They needed a redeemer. Some of you know exactly what I'm saying. Both ways you know it. Some of you are like me and you're hard-headed. And even after time and time again of God carrying me under his wing, I venture out into this world. Just this last week, I don't know why. I woke up and I felt empty. I felt so empty. It was as if the heavens were brass. I have no explanation. I don't know why. But here's what I do know. Is when I wake up that way, Yahweh, our great eagle, is spreading his wings. Say, take refuge under me. Now, what I want to do is take refuge in comfort, in entertainment, in friends as good as they are, in my wife, in my children, in some trinket toy, in my exercise. I, I, I'm looking for other things. And look, those things aren't bad, and they may be part of God's grace to me, but if they are the source of my refuge, they will fail me every time. But God, when he spreads his wings, will never fail. Boaz recognized Ruth to be a godly Proverbs 31 woman because she had sought refuge under the wing of the Lord. And what did she find under that wing? Grace upon grace. Ultimately, in chapter 2, in the person of Boaz, who was a redeemer. Boaz was a great man. His character is impeccable. You're going to hear it next week from, from Jacob. His character is unassailable. He is a man of God to the core. But outside of this recorded scripture, not to spoil it, but I hope you know Ruth, like, they end up married, okay? So, a little spoiler alert. How long did it take for Boaz, a man of high character, to prove himself to not be ultimately the redeemer? How long did it take for him to disappoint Ruth? To not give her what she wanted or what she thought she needed? How long did it take Boaz to be ungodly and sin? My guess is it took a few minutes. It didn't take long at all. Because we are not sufficient. While we may 
emulate the character of Boaz and we may be the best husband we can possibly be and we can be a type of shadow for our families, men, we will always fail. We will always fail. We need a redeemer. We need a redeemer with impeccable character. We need a redeemer who has never failed at one point of the law. We need a redeemer who doesn't just have a field, but he owns all the fields. We need a redeemer who doesn't just reap a crop up out of the field, and that's his pay, but he owns the field, the crop, the people that work in it, the people in need of it. He owns it all. We need that redeemer, don't we, church? We need a redeemer who, when we have gone into the world, will see us and by chance move towards us. We need a redeemer, a great redeemer. Boaz is great, but he's not great enough. That's what this passage really, at the end, is crying out to me is, he's one of our redeemers. We need a redeemer. I'm clinging to the redeemer. That's what she's doing at the end. She's clinging to the redeemer. She's trusting the redeemer. And what I'm saying is, I need a redeemer. I need a redeemer who doesn't just meet my temporal needs, but meets me all the way to my eternal soul. Some of you are here without that redeemer. You're not under his wings. You've rejected his wings. But I'm telling you about a redeemer that was born in Bethlehem, like his father Boaz, like his forefather Boaz. I'm talking about a redeemer who was born in Bethlehem, of common stock, born in a manger, not in a palace. Not disconnected from the common folk. A redeemer who was seen as common by everyone he ever came into contact with. Has anything good ever come out of Nazareth where this redeemer would grow up? Has anything good ever come out of there? I'm talking about a redeemer who didn't just say you can have the barley from a field. But he said I'm greater than the barley of the field. The loaf of bread at the bread of presence. I am the greater Boaz. I am the greater redeemer. I am the treasure of heaven. The one who comes after me and sells all he has to have me will find that he has more than enough. And the one who keeps what he has and rejects me will find that no matter how much he has, he is a poor man. Well, I need that redeemer. I need a redeemer who, who will accept me under his wing because I'm unacceptable. Because I'm a foreigner and I don't deserve it. Because I'm cut off. That's what I need. I need a redeemer. I don't just need a meal. I don't just need provisions for today. I need eternal hope. Is that what you need? And hear these words. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. A city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you and your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing to see your house is desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus went into 
the brow of the hill and looked out over a city filled with people who had said, God's wing is not where we want to find refuge. And Jesus says, because you won't find refuge in me under my wing, your house is desolate. If you've rejected Jesus Christ, I'm going to be bluntly honest. I don't care what kind of house you live in, car you drive, position of power you possess, the entertainment you enjoy, the many nights that you fill with decadence and enjoyment and joviality and celebration and the good times roll on and on, but they come to an end. When they come to an end, you will look at one who is the Redeemer who says, I reached out my hand, my wing, and you would not come. You would not come. So what I'm saying is if you're rejecting Christ today, that's where you are. You're outside of Christ. He's got his wing open to you. His arms are stretched out wide. Come to me if you are weary and in need of Redeemer, and I will redeem your soul. I will save you from the destruction that is on your house. Come to me. Come to me. If you reject him and you die in that rejection, you will face eternal judgment, which is your due reward. But if you're here, and what I've said to you feels and looks and sounds like that Redeemer, Jesus Christ, has his arms open to you saying, come. Then what I'm begging for you to do, what the Spirit is calling you to do, is come to that Redeemer. Come. Place yourself under the shadow of his wing. Where you will find grace upon grace upon grace for, for you in your time of need. You say, well, how can I trust it? How can I ever be certain, Carlton? Because that outstretched arm... Those outstretched arms, those wings which are covering the brood. They are tested and tried and true. Because they're the same arms which were stretched out for you and I on a cross, an instrument of death. This Redeemer doesn't just redeem people because the law says to. He redeems people the law says are damned. By giving not his land, not the barley harvest, not some cooked cakes, but his own flesh. The flesh which is the bread of heaven. And he, give it, he gave it for us. And in him we find refuge. In him we find grace. In him we find a redeemer. And so I challenge you, if you don't know him, then know him. If you, if you find yourself in a dark place today, rejecting him, understand that darkness is only done away with through the blood of the Lamb, the Redeemer, the greater Boaz that was yet to come. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time in your word, we think about our lives. We are so, God, so in need of you, so in need of your grace. Each of us, Father, we, surely we are those who are weak, who are foreigners, who are widowed in the truest sense. We have no family in this world. In our natural self, we are cut off from a hope that comes only through you. So if there are those who are here today and they heard this sermon and they're saying, that's me, I cry out, I need a redeemer. God, I pray they would cry out from their soul. 
and they would find in you their redeemer, their refuge, their salvation, their grace. And for those of us who have come, Lord, under your wing, Lord, who are tempted to go into this world looking for the refuges provided by this world, Lord, we ask that you, that your mighty hand would keep us, that you would bring us back to yourself, that we would cling to you by faith. It's in your name we pray.